The Dr. Coffee Podcast is proudly brought to you by IndemniMed. Welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, your weekly blend of motivation, encouragement, education, and insight into all things medicine for junior doctors and medical students in South Africa. This is episode 53, and on this week's Coffee with Consultants feature, we're interviewing a specialist in what is often portrayed in media and popular culture as one of those rock star surgical specialities, that is neurosurgery. We have an awesome interview lined up for you, as well as a historical story time with a question to interact with and respond to. And once again, our feature on the IAAAS's Future Surgeons Program. So there's a lot of good stuff for your ears. Before we go further though, I'd like to briefly highlight our sponsors that have helped make this week's episode possible and can also help your professional medical career go forward. We're excited that V Professional Services have come on board as long-term partners and official medical billing sponsors of the Dr. Coffee Podcast. V Professional Services is a medical practice administrator, medical bureau, and a professional medical accountant. If you're a new healthcare practitioner, they'll help you from the beginning to the end from registration to practice management and training. And if you're a healthcare professional with another medical billing company, they'll assist you in moving over all of your information with no financial loss or worries. V Professional Services assist a variety of healthcare practitioners with agents across South Africa. Plus, get this, their recovery rate on medical claims is between 95 and 100%. The outcome is that practitioners maintain control of their practices and are able to focus their attention on treating patients, while V Professional Services provide them with healthcare expertise along with all of the professional tools they need to succeed. You can find out more about V Professional Services by visiting their website vprofservices.com and checking out their social media on Instagram with the username at vprofservices. Thank you to V Professional Services for their support of the Dr. Coffee Podcast. We partner with brands and services that share our vision of healthcare and junior doctors in South Africa and who we believe can add value to your personal and professional development. Along that vein, I'd also like to thank our other title sponsor, IndemniMed from Money and Medicine. IndemniMed is the best way to safeguard your medical practice and future. As a young medical professional charting a course and building a career, you need protection from the financial storms of malpractice claims and legal action with IndemniMed's unparalleled medical indemnity cover. As part of the esteemed Money and Medicine Group, they offer innovative, tailor-made solutions backed by leading malpractice and legal firms across South Africa. So why should you choose IndemniMed? Firstly, they offer personalized protection. With an expert team that crafts coverage plans specific to your clinical risk profile, ensuring you're shielded from negligence claims, breaches of contract, and more. Secondly, they've already established an extensive network with access to the best service providers in South Africa, chosen after meticulous assessments of their reputation, financial stability, and track record. And thirdly, their comprehensive process. It begins with a consultation, where they offer expert advice on the ideal coverage for your needs, then making an assessment based on a thorough market evaluation to identify your optimal options and recommending the perfect service providers for you. Once those steps are complete, it's time for implementation with effortless setup of your essential coverage and finally ongoing support with continuous assistance as your needs evolve. Whether you're in private practice or the public sector, IndemniMed's coverage plans fortify your practice, your family and your reputation. Secure your practice's stability with IndemniMed's unwavering commitment to your protection. Don't wait. Ensure your medical journey is safeguarded today. And now about our guest on this week's interview. Dr. Jason Labaskachny graduated from the University of the Witwatersrand in 1999 and went on to complete his neurosurgery training at the University of the Free State where he graduated with his MMed cum laude in 2006. 
Dr. Labaskachny is now the head of pediatric neurosurgery at the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital in Johannesburg, South Africa. Despite his many clinical and managerial commitments, Dr. Labaskachny continues to maintain an extensive research portfolio with over 30 local and international publications to date. His current research is focused on minimally invasive treatment of craniofacial disorders. And finally, Dr. Labaskachny's ambition is for his unit to be comparable to all other reputable pediatric neurosurgery units in the world. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I'm sure you will as well. Without any further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Jason Labaskachny. Welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, Dr. Jason Labaskachny. Good to have you here, sir. Thank you so much for having us. So, sir, with all of our guests, um, what I'd like to do is start off with your junior doctor years and where you did your medical training so that you are a little bit more relatable to our audience because it's primarily medical students and interns and comserve doctors. So, where did you go to medical school? I did medical at VIT. Okay, and uh, that's was roughly what time? They, so we don't oh, want to give you your age. Yeah, away, I, I didn't. So, so my I was in first year in 1994. Okay, 1994 qualified in 1999 and was an intern in 2000. Okay, and as you were mentioning offline before this interview, back then internship was just one year. Internship was one year. And Correct. where did you yes. do your internship? Ventuk in Namibia. Oh, so, wow. yeah, yeah. Ours was one of the first years where they introduced um, kind of compulsory migration you know each university got a percentage across the country they tried to fulfill and I wanted to um didn't I wanted to go to specific hospitals I didn't want to take the chance of landing up with my third or fourth choice yes and Namibia wasn't high on the list and I thought it would be a good way of getting out of home and getting out of Johannesburg and so yeah so I went to Namibia for a year and it was an excellent decision that's amazing that you're able to do internship in another country yeah. is that still an option for interns it's, there I don't know yeah. I, I was chatting to somebody the other day and they said that they didn't think it was still possible but yeah. I didn't know it was possible until I saw it on the list wow. and it just like spoke to me and so I just took the opportunity so the HPCSA has these other yes. pockets yes it's only as far as I'm aware it was only Namibia I don't know what the, what the situation is now and it, and it was great it was far more relaxed than say a Barra or Samja we were far more independent so mm-hmm. we had to do a lot more you know our most senior you know, a person on the floor with you at night would be an MO that maybe had one year more experience than you. Sure. And then, you know, in the surgical departments, we had a fairly, we, we didn't have registrars, but but we'd have a consultant that would come out and help you in, in if there's a, a surgical emergency or whatever. But effectively, you be, the, became quite good at the practical side of medicine. Yes. The teaching wasn't great because we didn't have registrars. It sounds like it's more equivalent to a district level hospital correct. in South Africa. Yes, correct. Yeah. Except we we would we didn't have any, anybody to refer to. It sure. was the it was the only it was the, the major center in Ventuk. Sure. Yeah. And then Doc, you did Comserve in South Africa. Where did you yes. do Comserve? So so I was then sent to the Eastern Cape and in my year not entirely true, but they typically would split us up for six months. So I did my first six months in um, East London uh, between Freya and Cecilia Makwani. And there I was very fortunate. I did most of that six months in pediatric surgery. And that was an amazing department and academically and and, uh, it was really opened my eyes to the worlds of peds basically. Mm. So that was really great. And then I was sent to Alice, which is a tiny Eastern Cape uh, town. And uh, that was tough. That was not great. But uh, yeah, I did my primaries. I studied for my primaries in that year and wrote my primaries at the end of that year. So it, you know, being not having any social life or any life at all other than living literally on the hospital grounds, yeah. um, you know, I used it to study. And it was also, it was an experience. It was, but it's not something I'd recommend or want to repeat. So this is a good opportunity to build on that foundation and talk about the path to neurosurgery and pediatric neurosurgery in, in particular. What is the ideal route in terms of qualifying? So if you were to think um, back to your time as a, an MO, what would have helped you to prepare best? And then what would be the ideal path to go into pediatric neurosurgery? Well, um, it's a lot tougher these days. Uh, the entry requirements these days to get a registrar post uh, because neurosurgery is in such high demand at the moment mm. 
is tough. So I would recommend you do your internship. If you really want to fast track it, potentially in your internship, you could start thinking of writing your primaries. Now neurosurgery has, like all the other surgical disciplines, has a primary, but it also has a neuro um, primary as well, which is neuroanatomy, neurophysiology. And there, you know, you've just got to lean on a friend or someone you know to try and get the syllabus, look at the college website and, and, and that, because it's, yeah. it's not just a normal primary. And some of, it can actually, some of the questions are actually quite clinical as well. So you need to chat to somebody or phone a friend kind of thing just to get the syllabus and, and work out what to do. So I recommend do your primaries in your, in your internship year or potentially your second year internship once you find your feet a bit as a doctor. And then these days, if you could somehow get your intermediates. Now, I'm sure. In your, as, as yeah, you'd have to. I mean, you may get an MO post in a, in a satellite hospital. Uh, say a spot like Clark's door, uh, where they have a neurosurgical uh, department, you may be able to get a medical officer post there with a primary, and then which is a really good place to start yep. because number one, you get your hands dirty, so you get to operate a bit and you get to do the trauma and you get to potentially even do a bit more than you would do once you get into an academic setting, and then try and write your intermediates in that year. So to write your intermediates, you need about eighteen months of surgical speciality time which they quite lenient with so you could have six months ICU six months trauma six months probably six months ED may count I'm not 100% sure six months trauma surgery definitely would um, six months general surgery or six months in your own uh, speciality so if you were lucky enough to be in a surgery in a neurosurgical MO post you could use that so you need about 18 months combined time so in my, when I did my intermediates, I had my six months of pediatric surgery. I had three months of trauma, three months of ICU, and six months of neurosurgery. Yeah, time. So really so then, yeah, yeah, so then you then you would write your intermediates, and then you would start applying to one of the academic circuits, either VITS or UP or Cape Town for a for a either another medical officer post, but you kind of upgrade you at least getting into a department, or then for a registrar post. The other things you can do as well, so obviously things like HLS, APLS. Which is basically uh, necessary for any surgery. Which is necessary for any surgery post. I mean, if you see what comes through in the interviews, guys say, well, tell us why do you want to do neurosurgery or what's interested you. So, you know, you need really need to demonstrate that you have an interest. Mm. Um, buy a neurosurgical textbook. You know, there's lots of handbooks of neurosurgery or whatever. Start reading through it mm. watch YouTube. YouTube channels, um, join, like I've mentioned before, you know, I've got a, a, a just a WhatsApp group where I invite students to and say, come watch us operate, see what you do. Definitely try and do your elective in, maybe that's the first place to start. Yes, yeah. so you start with your elective. Because for in most, surgery, most um, students, that's in kind of fourth or fifth year. Yes. And it's an yes. opportunity for them to see yes. um, in a non-pressure, non-academic, you know, where, where the surgeons are very, very inclined to be like, come and see this cool thing. Yes. You know? yes. Yeah. And that can really see if they are interested. It does sound like there's two roads. So one road is straight into neurosurgery. If you are able to get that neurosurgery MO post or get more exposure early on. And the other road is to go via general surgery. So maybe through general surgery, let's say you do surgery in conserve and you get your ICU time, your trauma time, your gen surgeon, P-surg time. Because um, that is possible. Some people I know have done one year of conserve in surgery and within that year have done all four of those just three months at a time. So they get that outside time and then if they're interested in neurosurgery, are able to come in with that time. Would you say that it's better to get general surgical skills first? I mean, I think if you know that you want to be a neurosurgeon, the sooner you can get into the department, the better. Mm. The sooner you can get known by the people that are going to hire you, the better. Yeah, there's no point doing yeah. 100 hernia on yes. if you're going to be a yes. neurosurgeon. Yes, but not everybody knows that neurosurgery is definitely what they want to do and then having a broad base of having done general surgery time orthopedics time and many of my friends and colleagues that you know we trained together and that had come from a background of orthopedics had done two or three years of orthopedics and then decided you know 
they had already got the intermediate and thought they were going to be orthopedic surgeons and then decided, no, we want, we want to change to neuro. We had some guys who had actually been in private practice as family doctors for a few years and then decided, no, and had, had come back into it. But more difficult for those guys, to be honest. Yeah. And then, but so we had a, I mean, even my colleague that I work with at the moment, he started life out as a forensic pathologist, you know, and he did that for two or three years, had a reach post and decided, no, this wasn't for him. And then, uh, you know, started again, new set of primaries, new set of intermediates wow. and that. So, I mean, it, people will, will will find their way. But if you really know that you want to do neurosurgery, the sooner you can get into it, known to a department, the better. Sure. And some departments are different than others. So I was, in my time, we were given outside time. So you could enter the department as an MO or as a registrar even, and then you were given nine months or a year where you could rotate out of the department. Oh, so, so they actually did built it, it into They built time. it into the time. So if you didn't have, say, enough ICU time or trauma time, which you need for your intermediates, they would allow you to, it was built into it, you could leave and you could oh. go, go and do that. Is it still like that today? I don't know. Because yeah. uh, so I studied in the free state, yeah. So I studied in the free state, my, my, my postgrad. So I wouldn't know. Um, I imagine the free state had still that way because it's very much, it had been like that for, 20 years so i imagine it's still similar mm -hmm. but as i said these days it's so competitive that most yeah. people are coming in with that time there's almost unheard of that you'd come out of your community service straight into a academic department it's it, it would be rare mm -hmm. there's still exceptions you know sometimes yeah. the department loses someone in the beginning of the year and it just happens to someone to be free and they get a an interview and they get they're the only person that's free and they get in so but generally People are coming into neurosurgery now with a lot more outside time, whether it be in general surgery, trauma, ICU. I mean, ICU is probably the best place to start. I mean, if, if you had to choose one, I think time spent in ICU six months or a year would be better than time spent even in general surgery. Wow. Um, and even time spent in neurology, you know, because we don't get an official neurology rotation, which I think is something that's missing in a in a the South African neurosurgical training is that we don't spend enough time in, in neurology, whereas in the States, for example, I think they have a compulsory six or nine months where they do a rotation through neurology. What would the neurology rotation add to you as a surgeon? Because I imagine that you're obviously seeing a lot more clinical stuff as a neurologist rather than surgical things. You, you're seeing the, maybe the developments of neurological problems, so you're seeing the progression or maybe you're seeing improvements. Is there anything that, as a neurosurgeon, well, you would really get from that neurology research? So the cynic in me says that the neurologists examine their patients a lot better than we do. So just so just examination of a patient, I mean, the, the neurologists are, you know, they kind of consulting physicians, so they spend a lot more time with the patient. Hmm. You know, in a trauma, neurosurgical trauma kind of thing, you, you kind of rush to make a decision and make that and we base a lot of our examinations actually on the CD scans, which is completely the wrong thing to do. But I think neurology, you get to learn to examine a patient really well, which will help you in your examinations and in your understanding of pathology. And then you get to understand, uh, you know, we probably one of our, one of the departments that consult you the most is neurology because they want to know, okay, this, this patient's had a stroke, does this patient need a decompressive craniotomy? Or this patient had has had a bleed, does this patient need an evacuation of the bleed? So you work hand in hand with your with your neurologists and you may you may get sent as a neurosurgeon, you may get referred a patient that is more of a neurology patient and then it's a good idea to kind of know what you're dealing with. So I've been sent patients with referred to me as a as a, a cervical injury, and and it turns out to be a motor neuron disease or uh, brachial plexus neuritis. So it's a good idea to have that kind of fundamental understanding of neuro neurology, but it doesn't happen in this country, and I don't think it ever will happen. But my, my point being, it's not a bad idea to spend some time out of neurosurgery before you kind of commit yeah. to, to doing it. For your life, it's much better to just get on and do what you want to do, but it's to be a better, well-rounded neurosurgeon, it's not a bad idea to spend some time outside of the yeah. department. Now, neurosurgery is stereotypically held up as like the paragon of all the surgical disciplines. Do you think that that is a fitting uh, description of surgery, of, of neurosurgery? Do you think that there's 
some things that you do as a neurosurgeon that are just beyond the scope or beyond the realm of other surgical disciplines? I mean, yes and no. Uh, the what we do is tough, but every discipline in medicine is is is, is tough. You know, the we all have fine motor skills that we have to tune and work on and I think neurosurgeons are no better surgeons than in, than any other surgeon surgeons. I think where the biggest difference comes in is our complications are catastrophic. So you can do even a successful operation and you can have a vessel that can occlude, uh, you can have a, a vessel that, that can, can bleed in the middle of the night and the patient can die after a very successful procedure in the middle of the night from a from a bleed or a stroke, sure. And uh, and so our complication, not rate, but our, 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 if you have a complication, it's typically devastating, and there's no coming back from it. Yeah, so oh, that makes sense. Like if yeah. a person's just done a TMA on the foot and you get an infection, you just go a little bit higher up and keep cutting, right? Correct. But if yeah. you get a small yeah. bleed in the yeah. brain, it can yeah. be catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the orthopedic surgeons I work with always says he doesn't work where you can't amputate. So, you know, you can't... He doesn't work, work where you, you can't, can't amputate. amputate. Wow, okay. <laughs> so, you, know, you know, if he gets a complication, you can, you know, you can amputate, we can sure. fix, we can, you know, you can... We don't have that luxury, you know. Yeah. So if you, get a, if you get an anastomosis that breaks down, you can, in an abdomen, you can open up. I mean, obviously, there's morbidity and mortality attached to it, but if we have something that goes wrong in the brain, it's permanent and it's life-altering for that for that patient. Yes. So I think, in some respects, our, our attention to detail is probably a bit higher, um, and I think the level of stress, and I don't think that should be underestimated, is the level of stress that the surgery places us under. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably where the biggest difference comes from, yeah. um, or where the where the I see the biggest difference in, in, in between myself and say my good friends at orthopedic surgeons or ENTs or yes. plastic surgeons, you know. Can we explore that a little bit? So when you're consenting patients and especially as a pediatric neurosurgeon, you're not just dealing with a patient, you're dealing with parents and you're dealing with a family that's very emotional. Um, do you consent? Have you ever said to people, look, we can do the operation, but you know what? It may be better to just live with this problem because the risks are too great. Yeah, I mean, all the time, all the time. So, so you know, we have a kid in the ward at the moment that has a brainstem tumor, and the we we just it's not it's inoperable. You know, it's, sure. it's inoperable. They would, and there have been some cases where surgeons have said, okay, well, we're going to tackle this, and then the outcome is the kid is survives, but he's in a coma for the rest of his life or in a permanent vegetative state. So, absolutely, there's there's. On a regular basis, you get something that you can't tackle or it's just presented too late to tackle. You know, now that's, that, you know, it's something we face with regularly, but it's, it's, it is still the exception. You know, most, most patients that are referred to us, we can do something for. Um, some tumors we know we can't cure, mm-hmm. but we can say, well, we can buy a quality of life, perhaps for a year or two um, with the aid of, of after the surgery may need chemotherapy or radiotherapy. But then you have to be up front of the patient and say, look, this is this tumor will kill you. Uh, we will buy you quality of life or we, you know, we'll do a, as best we can for as long as we can, but this is not a survivable condition. Sure. And uh, patients are asking me, well, what is the chance of success of the surgery? So it's almost always possible to remove a tumor or to clip an aneurysm. But sometimes the consequences of that are, you know, there's things worse than death, you know. And sure. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to wake up from a from a from an operation and not be able to move one side of my body or be totally dependent on my family to look after my every need. So, yeah. so you've got to temper your enthusiasm to operate with what is the patient going to look like at the end of the operation. Yeah. There was a um, something that I saw posted the other day that said a a bad surgeon does harm by not doing, uh, sorry, an unconfident surgeon, let's say. An an unconfident surgeon does harm by not doing enough, but an overconfident surgeon does harm by doing too much. And it sounds like it's that balance of like knowing your skills and knowing the technology available and also balancing it with like, okay, 
I'm not God. Mm. I'm not able to, to do the impossible. And now for this week's story time. I've been working at Hillbrow CHC for the month of November and one of the senior doctors there asked me if I had ever heard of Simon Fraser, the Australian soldier from the Battle of Rommel's. I replied that I knew Simon Fraser was quite a famous name. There's a Canadian explorer, a Scot who fought alongside William Wallace, and even a university named Simon Fraser University. But anyway, the story of this particular Simon Fraser is pretty inspirational, even if only to me. But I thought I'd share it briefly in this week's episode. So here goes. During World War I, on the 19th of July 1916, the troops of the 5th Australian and 61st British Divisions attacked a strong German position near the small French village of Fromelles. The overnight assault, the first major battle fought by Australian troops on the Western Front, was mainly intended as a diversion to draw German troops away from the Somme offensive further south. The attack failed though and their losses were catastrophic. The 5th Australian Division suffered 5,533 killed and wounded and the 61st British Division suffered 1,547. A Victorian farmer named Sergeant Simon Fraser was a member of a battalion that was not in the initial assault that night but who were present throughout the Battle of Rommel's. Fraser was sent out over several nights before the main attack to get the barbed wire ready for the charge over. He had become something of an expert in cutting through the enemy entanglements and was told that he would be mentioned in dispatches for his excellent work. The 57th Battalion were in a supporting role when the charge was made, and Sergeant Fraser wrote in a letter, We had to hold our old line. The battalions who went over met with too hot a reception and suffered severely. The distance was too far. When we came up, the artillery was mixing things up a bit. High explosives and shrapnel were flying everywhere. The bombardment kept up all night and a good few of my mates passed out that night. So far, three of my section have been killed and two wounded badly out of us 12. When the battle was over, Fraser and others began the dangerous and difficult task of retrieving the wounded from no man's land. He wrote, I must say Fritz, which is another way of saying the Germans, treated us very fairly, though a few were shot at the work. Some of these wounded were game as lions and got rather roughly handled, but haste was more necessary than gentle handling, and we must have brought in over 250 men by our company alone. It was no light work getting in with a heavy weight on your back, especially if he had a broken leg or arm, and no stretcher bearer was handy. You had to lie down and get him on your back, then rise and duck for your life, with the chance of getting a bullet in you before you were safe. Over three days, the men made these missions to no man's land, looking and listening for those still alive. Fraser wrote, One foggy morning in particular, I remember, we could hear someone over towards the German entanglements calling for a stretcher bearer. It was an appeal no man could stand against, so some of us rushed out and we had a hunt. We found a fine haul of wounded and brought them in, but it was not where I heard this fellow calling out. So I had another shot for it and came across a splendid specimen of humanity trying to wiggle into a trench with a big wound in his thigh. He was about 14 stone weight, which is about 90 kilograms, and I could not lift him on my back. But I managed to get him into an old trench and told him to be quiet while I got a stretcher. Then another man about 30 yards out sang out, Don't forget me, cobber! I went in and got four volunteers with stretchers and we got both men in safely. Fraser was not decorated for his courage in retrieving the wounded from the battlefield. His efforts were considered just part of what had to be done. However, his heroism has since been recognized in a sculpture of him by artist Peter Corlett that stands in the Australian Memorial Park at Fromelles, and more recently, a copy of the sculpture was unveiled on Melbourne's St Kilda Road. The Victorian farmer never actually returned home. He was killed at the Second Battle of Bullecourt on 12th of May 1917, aged 40, and his body was never found. Two things from the story stand out to me. First of all, Sergeant Fraser was not decorated for his valiant efforts. He just did what had to be done. He had what we'd like to call a volunteer spirit. I know sometimes our work feels and even looks like we work in a war zone. But what if we were actually in a real war zone? How would we act? Would we step up to the plate and serve as selflessly as Sergeant Fraser and many others did, or would we shrink back for our own safety? The second point to take home is the power of names and finding role models in history that you share a name with. 
When I interviewed Prof. Paget back in episode 5 of the podcast, I asked him if he was at all related to the doctor responsible for Paget's disease of the breast or bones. And I've been to medical school with an Epstein and a Eurotubulomy was a Barnard. Perhaps you've worked with people who share names with or are even related to famous people in medicine and surgery. So that's our interactive question on today's episode. Do you or someone you know share a name with someone famous in medicine and what's their name? Do you know a Semmelweis, perhaps a Vukau or Jenner, maybe a Charcot or a DeBakey? We'd love to hear from you. So please interact with this episode using the Q&A function on Spotify or respond in the comments to this episode's post on Instagram or lastly, you could send an email to our email address, drcoffeeza at gmail.com, with no punctuation marks. Now back to our interview with Dr. Jason Abiskachny. You have already elucidated a little bit about the perks as well as the perils of neurosurgery. Is there anything that's particularly rewarding that you say, this makes all of that difficulty worth it? I mean, either you love it or that, or you hate it, and you're going to love parts of it, and you're going to hate parts of it. Mm-hmm. It's very stressful. It's very demanding on your family. Um, it's very demanding on your on your social life. You know, as I alluded to before, you know, you can't go on holiday and turn your phone off. You can't. You can't even go go watch a movie and turn your phone off. So it's very very difficult. Why Why is it like this? Well, it depends on the situation you 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 work in. But typically, if you if you know at the end of the day, you need you have a responsibility to your patient, and if you operate on a patient, you know until that patient's out of ICU, he could deteriorate. At I don't want to say at any moment. Like, I don't want to make it sound as if there's something is something that happens regularly. But but you need to be available even and you don't know that phone call you see on your phone the phone was coming from ICU it could be just to say hey the patient's asking for a sleeping tablet he's doing exceptionally well what could be hey this guy's pressure's going through the roof what is the next the next step so you 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 kind of live with your phone or you live unless you've set up in it's potentially a bit better in an academic situation where you it's filtered you've got a medical officer and you've got a registrar and you've got a consultant and you have a head of department but the majority of people who are probably going to listen to your podcast are probably guys who want to land up in private practice one day. And then the buck stops with you. So there are very few, unfortunately, there are very few partnerships uh, in neurosurgery in South Africa. Uh, you know, we find there's, there's anesthetic partnerships, there's orthopedic partnerships, there's general surgery partnerships. There's a lack of partnerships down to personality. I think it's down to personality. I think it's down to personality. Yeah. There have been a few and very few of them have worked. There's one or two associations where the guys can, you know, do tend to work a bit better, but it's, I think it's down to personality. Sure. I think it's down to personality. The guys want to, and, 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 and just culture within the discipline, that the guys want to don't work well in teams. We're not team players, you know. The lone wolves of the, the surgical yeah, circuit. Yeah, yeah, but you did mention that you had friends in ENT and orthopedics, yes. and, and it makes sense because, for example, the spine is surrounded by bones, so you yes. need to have orthopedics yes. Uh, yes. with you. So... Uh, do you build those relationships through your training? I mean, are you exposed to all of these teams or do you have to network and extend your reach to these different subspects? I mean, I think it just happens organically. Yeah. So unfortunately, I mean, my boss always used to say, try and practice as close to where you qualified as possible. Now that wasn't desirable for me. I didn't want to stay in the free state. I would love to have stayed in the free state, but when I finished, we had a, a big group of guys that finished within about an 18 month period of which a majority of their wives were in uh, private practice in the free state in Bloemfontein or and their kids were in school so they really didn't want to move out of the Bloemfontein area and you know I didn't have attachments I didn't have kids I could move around and I was a Johannesburg boy so I was like well I'll, I'll come back to Johannesburg yeah and so it was easier for me to move and even some of the guys who had stayed, who had family down there and kids were in schools, they were subsequently left because there's only a, you only need so many neurosurgeons, then it's oversaturated. Okay. Particularly in the private space. So 
if you can if you can land up working in the area where you specialize that's great because then you would have met the anesthetists that are going to dope for you you would have met the ENTs that are going to open up if you do your transonoidal hypothectomy you would have worked you would have chosen your ENT you know yes. uh, you would chosen the orthopedic spinal surgeon you're going to work with you would have worked with them for a couple of years and you would have would have um, identified with them but so for me it didn't work out that way I moved to to a hospital in in in, in Midrand Centurion and I had to start all over again but you know, it it just you meet like-minded people. You know, yeah. you you find an ENT, you work with a couple, and you find one that you like, and you continue to work with them. And referral patterns get set up, and and you know, some of those people will become your friends. Some will just remain colleagues, and will just be working acquaintances. But yeah. some of my best friends are guys that I've met working with, and you know, and our families have become friends, and we our kids have become friends. So. So yeah, it, it, it will grow organically. You mentioned yeah. during ComServe that you were placed in a hospital where there was no social life and so you were able to pour yourself into your studies. Do you think that that helped you to develop good habits so that when you went into a registrar post, you had already developed the self-discipline to sit down and, and get the studies done? I mean, personally, no. I was a, I'm a type A personality and I'm fear, I have terrible fear of failure. So every exam I've ever written, I thought, maybe I'll scrape through this one, you know. And then so you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I've, I've always had a, I've always had a, had a, had a I've, I've always been fairly diligent and, and fairly um, have the anxious disposition to want to make sure that I'm going to, 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 to do well. Sure. So I think my habits were ingrained from school days. I don't think anyone who's made it through medical school has probably got bad habits, realistically. I think, and you know, I often get approached by, call them kids, medical students, and they say, well, I want to be a neurosurgeon, but I don't know if I can. And, and I mean, if you can get through medical school, I think you can get, academically, you can get through neurosurgery. Sure. But there's more to it than that. As I said, you've got to have, you know, you've got to have a, a strong support system you've got to be prepared to put in the hours you've got to you've got to be committed to it. otherwise you're just going to be a crappy surgeon mm. uh, you, you've got to but it's more than academics I don't believe anyone who's got through medical school doesn't have the academic ability to do it it's do they have the other technical and non-technical skills to do it so now you are a husband and a father yes. without delving too deep into a family do you mind if you ask some questions yeah, about sure. the sure. dynamic there so as you already alluded to, neurosurgery is kind of uh, almost mutually exclusive from being a family man. How did you navigate that journey? At what points of your, your life did you start a family and meet your wife? And, and how do you incorporate them into this and help them to understand what you do and why it's so important that you have to interrupt the bride to answer the phone call? You know? so, so it is tough. And um, unfortunately, I have a very understanding, understanding wife. I started a family quite late, so I was already qualified and okay. I settled down in private. And did you make this as an intentional decision? No, no. It's just the way it, it's just the way it it, it, it worked out. Um, so I started, uh, you know, with the family. I mean, I'm an old dad. Yeah. So so most of my contemporaries, their kids are in at least in high school. Some of them are already medical students themselves. And, I've got two toddlers, so I started late in, in life. I mean, my when my wife, when I met my wife, I was already working hard as a neurosurgeon, so she kind of knew what to expect. And um, I remember her <laughs> her dad saying to her, just know what you're marrying, you know. Sure. You know so, so, so. Nothing like the in-laws. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 yeah, so, but it, but it's, it's, we do make it work. Um, so is she in so, medicine as well? Uh, no, no, she's not. So, and do you so, find that that's so, helpful? No, I, I don't. I don't think it's it's it is one way or the other. I mean, okay. there's yeah. many guys that are married to doctors. Yeah. There are many guys that are 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 not, and the marriage success ratio seems to be the same in either direction. Mm -hmm. So, so, so not. Um, but I do. So if I attend a congress, my family come with. Oh, so it's, you know, they make, make a holiday. Uh, we make a holiday. So we and make because take, your uh, children uh, are still young enough, yeah. they, it's not like you're pulling them out of school. Correct, correct. So, correct. 
and and you know and my family support structure extends beyond that you know i've got uh you know grandparents that can look after the kids if we want to go so is your dad on board yeah yeah, my dad yeah yeah, (laughs) i finally won him around you know so so so, uh, yeah so so it 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 is tough but it's but it's manageable it's it's manageable but i just don't think you should uh, i'm making this sound dreadful but i just don't think you should be blind to the fact that it takes a lot of hard work you've got to be intentional about it yeah and include your family in as much as you can you know in uh, and uh, i understand i mean my, my my kids you know they see me go they see when i put on scrubs okay dad's going to work and then they like already start saying okay bye dad which is it's hard so um you know or i get home and i'm I come home in my scrubs and they're like, are you going out again? You know, and because they used to me like coming in and then being called to go, to go out again. So, so it's hard to, and some days think, is it, is it really worth it? But, um, you know, they, 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 they also get to see someone who's got a good work ethic. We'd, I hope to think that they will grow up with a good work ethic and understand why, you know, work is and important. And you it in a way that you can provide for them. And take yeah, them so, so, yeah, so, I mean, obviously, as, as a neurosurgeon, you'll, you'll never do badly financially, you know. You'll do, it's one of the better paying um, specialties. We work hard for our money. I mean, we work long hours. Yeah. But um, if you work hard and if you have a good good practice, you, you will be rewarded financially yeah and 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 that comes with its own benefits you know we can we can go on holidays and we can go to the sea and they can get way too many toys than they need and um so so yeah so it does have its its perks as well i saw a very humorous um skit where a dinner guest is invited to a party and he works at nasa so he's a rocket scientist and He's very proud of the fact that he's a rocket scientist and as he meets other guests you know they say oh i'm an accountant he's like stop it's not rocket science, yeah, yeah. is it? And as he goes around, he's, he's alienating himself mm-hmm. from people because he's, he's the rocket scientist. And then he meets a neurosurgeon. And the neurosurgeon says, oh, what do you do? And the guy says, oh, I'm a, I'm a rocket scientist. <laughs> and that's it. He goes, stop. It's not brain surgery, <laughs> is it? Yeah, I've, seen, I've seen that one. Yeah, do, you, do you find that when you meet people and, and they hear that you're a neurosurgeon, do you see a change in them? Do they they're kind of like, oh, my gosh, this guy's a neurosurgeon? To an extent. To, to an extent, I mean, there's no doubt about it, and um, that that neurosurgeons are held in high regard. You, yeah. you know, so number one, we rare people. You know, it, you seldom get to meet you know another neurosurgeon. You know, so 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 you are held in 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 high regard. And people people's perception of you probably does change a little, and. Um, I mean, I don't know if that's always rightfully so. It's it's just it's just a perception that that, that people have, um, and the typical thing is, wow, that must be so difficult. Wow, that must be must be so hard. And the first question you get asked is, how long are your operations? You know, do you have to are the operations like sixteen hours or eighteen hours? How do you sit for so long? How some do of them are. Well, well, some of them are. So, some of them some of them are. But it's something you get used to. You know, you, your first op's not going to be a sixteen hour op. You know, sure. you're going to you as you come through the ranks and as you get to do you. It's like becoming your first run isn't going to be a marathon. Yeah. You 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 become surgically fit, and you and so do the hours. You know you you land up. I see if I go and leave for a two week holiday and I get back the first week or two by the end of the theatre list I'm tired. Um, whereas once I've been in that cycle again of 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 operating, you know long theatre lists. A twelve-hour theatre list becomes routine. You, yeah. you know, so you become theatre fit. Let's take a quick break to tell you a little bit more about our sponsors, V Professional Services. As we said earlier, they're a medical practice administration and medical billing service provider with national distribution and reach. They've been in the profession for over thirteen years and have a recovery rate on medical claims of more than ninety-five percent. Their attention is focused on saving you, the clinician, time and money. V Professional Services protects the goodwill of your practice and cherishes the relationships you have with your patients, positively influencing financial performance and turning around obstacles that prevent your practice from achieving its goals. Having worked with some of the best partners in the world of healthcare, V Professional Services has very extensive insights and a broad understanding of the entire healthcare market. As a company, they have a genuine understanding of what is required to run a successful medical practice. 
This knowledge and expertise, along with their high service delivery standards, allow V Professional Services to provide the best solutions and comprehensive support to healthcare providers across South Africa. They create a tailor-made package for your practice needs and only bill on what they recover. Their service also includes all the setup costs for the hardware and software for the practice to manage their own online billing through online practice management platforms. V Professional Services are one of the only service providers in the country registered for debit order management. This means that they can monitor debtors accurately and effectively by ensuring that you receive all funds, be it private patients or short payments by medical scheme companies, in a fraction of the time normally spent collecting these amounts. It also ensures a highly efficient collection rate without the need for any costly legal action taken or patient liable amounts being written off. They supply you with the patient information form accompanied by a debit order mandate and any amounts due are collected in a simple and cost-effective manner without the patient being phoned or harassed. This keeps your practice goodwill intact and has an explosive effect on your cash flow as uncollectible amounts practically fall to zero. This service is available on all of their products and offerings which can be tailor-made to your requirements. V Professional Services packages include some of the following services. Submitting all claims electronically to medical aid companies with the cost included, following up on claims and administrating as well as patient data management, thus minimizing admin costs at your practice or clinic, efficient and professional administration and collection of medical aid claims and private patient fees, detailed reports on all patient visits, payments outstanding and received, backup of medical data daily, IT support, and accounting services including payroll management, tax advisory services, and legal assistance at a discounted rate. You can book an appointment on their website or reach them by emailing marketing at vprof.co.za or phoning 012-348-3567. Thank you, V Professional Services, for your support of the Dr. Coffee Podcast. When you look back on your training, um, the training takes a number of years. And is there anything that you think was particularly good about your training in the South African context? Or do we get great exposure? Are we limited in terms of resources? How good is our neurosurgery training like in South Africa? So I think it's pretty on par um, with, I, the rest of the with, with the rest of the world. I think if I had to fault it is I think you can qualify too young and with too little experience. So I believe you can probably get through neurosurgery in about four and a half, five years of exposure to, neuro, to neurosurgery, perhaps even less. And then you're a neurosurgeon, you know, and then you have a license to go out and operate on any neurosurgical condition. I, I don't think, you know, we're at a technological age where you can't be a competent neurosurgeon in every neurosurgical discipline within five years. It's it's not possible unless you're some kind of freak of nature, but but <laughs> the average average person out there just can't be competent within five years. Yeah. So I would say our, our training is on par and each university differs in the emphasis it, it places. Like so in, in the free state we got a very broad training. We did a lot of spinal work, we did a lot of even peripheral surgery, um, peripheral nerve surgery. Uh, we did um, an equal amount of, of intracranial vascular surgery. Other departments, say, perhaps do not do a lot of uh, orthopedic surgery. They, they don't do a lot of spinal surgery. They focus primarily on intracranial pathology. Other departments f will focus slightly less on actually the, the doing, um, and they have a better, perhaps, academic base, and then rely on their guys to stay on and perhaps do fellowships. Uh, to get the actual, actual hands on on training, so each each department is, is slightly different, but I think y you need to set you need to be aware of your department's shortcomings and their strengths, and then play to that. You know, so I went to university where we got a very broad hands on teaching, and then you we know we would have half an academic day per week. The vet circuit, for example, has an academic morning three days a, w a week, so. You know, you've got to, you've just got to play to the department strengths and then make up for it on, on, on your own accord. Yeah. So, but it, you can can come out a very competent neurosurgeon, but I would intentionally take longer than the five years than you're given. I would, 
I would spend another two or three years either doing fellowships or staying on in the department as a as a junior consultant and picking up your technical skills sure. before you, 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 you go out into the big bad world and say, okay, I can do everything. Yeah. Because you can't. No one can. I, I had the privilege of meeting you at the Wits Student Surgical Society's great debates where you were representing pediatric neurosurgery and you were telling us about some of your interesting cases and you know basically selling the subspec. And one of the things that you did mention is about the advances in, in neurosurgery over the last 20 or 30 years, driven by first imaging. So as our imaging improved, then our planning and what we could do intra-op improved. And now recently with things like robotic surgery and um, surgical techniques where your, your entry point into the brain is literally like a two millimeter window you were describing in your lecture. Um, if you look back over the last 20 years and then look forward, what is the direction for neurosurgery? What are the major advances? What would somebody who's having an interest in neurosurgery now, how would the landscape change for them by the time they've specialized in, let's say, 10 years' time? Sure. So, obviously, the hot topics at the moment are AI and robotics. And what we're seeing, so we haven't really seen AI come make a huge change in neurosurgery yet, but there will probably be some application where where, where it will. Certainly in imaging, mm -hmm. I think it's starting to have an impact. And robotics what is having somewhat of an impact in terms of, um, you know, marketing, uh, marking your target and being able to, you know, even in a spinal surgery, placing your pedicle screws there, we re not relying, but using robotics more and more. The biggest change I think in, in cranial surgery is coming in, in, in surgical planning with augmented uh, reality, you know, being able to see things in three dimension to do surgical simulation before the on before the patient where they'll you build a model um, of the tumor and will show you all the vasculature around it and you can do a do an entire surgical walkthrough, your approach, where you're going to dissect the vessels you're yes. going to look for. So I think augmented reality is becoming both pre-op and intra-op um, is probably the next big thing. Endoscopic surgery is before, you know, we're very, very limited. My, my first endoscopic procedure was done with a urologist's urethroscope into the ventricle. Oh, that was wow. 20 years ago. <laughs> wow. Now we have dedicated instruments, dedicated scopes, 4K scopes. So, so our ability to do endoscopic work is becoming, um, you know, what we can do endoscopically is becoming bigger. So that is certainly a major uh, narrative. And do you and use the 3D displays? I know the ophthalmologists, because of their depth that they're operating on, like they, if they're doing an anterior segment surgery, their depth is only two or three millimeters. That's their entire surgical field. So they use 3D monitors and 3D glasses and they're actually looking at the monitor because then they can magnify it much greater than, than actually just looking through their loops. So do you work through loops? Do you work through big displays? So, so I tend to use the microscope, which gives me standard depth perception. Um, other one microscope that we do have is 3D compatible where you can use the, the glasses, okay. but I tend not to personally, I don't. Um, I still use the microscope, I trained with it, I've been using it for 20 odd years. Sure. So that's my, my go-to. I don't use loops, where some people would use loops. Um, I would, I, st I just take the, mi the microscope. Yeah. Uh, the exoscope, which gives you that three-dimensional where you wear the glasses is becoming more and more freely available to, to us and some units have it. I personally don't have it in my own theater, but I've worked with it a bit. I still prefer the microscope, but maybe that's because I'm getting a little bit old and resistant to change. But uh, no doubt that would be the type of thing that neurosurgeons five, 10, 15 years from now will be using more sure. and more and more. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, when you, you were introduced at the great debate, um, they did say that one of your great driving passions is to make your units a world-class pediatric neurosurgery unit. What are some of the challenges to that in the South African context? Because you straddle kind of a private and public setting at this beautiful hospital at Nelson Mandela. What are the challenges unique to, to the setting? Well, it's still funding. I mean, at the end of the day, if you throw enough money at a problem, you can, you can solve a lot of problems. Yeah. So we still have funding issues. You know, I would love to have an extra neurosurgeon on my on my staff. 
I'd love to have an extra register on my staff, and all that can be solved if we if we if we had the resources for it. Just the equipment, I'm exceptionally blessed. I work in a hospital that got donors that have donated wonderful microscopes, endoscopes, um, better equipped than most private hospitals. So there, um, I'm 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 well equipped. But still, funding. You know, I would like to be able to have more theatre lists, but that means I need a new th- another anaesthetist and I need another set of theatre staff that goes with the st- staff complement that goes with that. So it comes down to resources. So that would be um, the the number one thing. When you get when you get to a certain number of, of patients, if you operate if you've got a unit that's operating every day, you start getting big numbers and then you can start publishing those numbers and then you start becoming renowned in your and own that, in its own way brings in more resources. Correct. So has correct. positive correct. feedback. Correct, yeah. So you've got to reach that critical mass. You know, you've got to say, okay, well we're gonna do if you're doing fifty minor meninga seals a year, which we could comfortably do do here, you know, then you sign to get a big series. Yeah. And you publish that series and you become known for that. You get invited to congresses, you get to speak on it, you get to write review articles and then all of a sudden Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital is the the centre of excellence for, you know, yeah. um Minor just as a, as a silly example. Hydrocephalus, you know, you you treating, you know, we could easily do 150, 200, 200 hydrocephalus cases a year if we had the resources for it. You know, we have waiting lists for kids that need urgent surgery. And yeah. um, if we had more resources, we could do more cases, we could write them up. And also if I had more bigger staff complement, it would free us up to do the academic stuff that you need to do. You know, you need to collect that data, you need to write that data up, you need to. So it's just, it's really a question of, of resources. We have the patient population, we have the patients that are willing to come here and to be treated and need to be treated. Yes. So we have everything in our at our disposal to make this really a uh, uh, a fantastic unit um, that we can be exceptionally proud of, both as a department, a hospital, and, and, and as a country. But we need funding. Yeah. We need funding. Dr. Labuskakli, we're coming towards the end of this interview, and I think that it has been incredibly enriching. It's been very informative, and it's also at times been quite deep. I think the topic of neurosurgery and also who you are as a person has come through in this episode. On a slightly lighter note, how do you uh, personally deal with avoiding burnout? How do you relax? How do you defrag from a busy theatre list? I'm only my family for a start. You know, you come home and you you feel terrible, and you're like, oh, why am I why am I done this? So you get home at eight o'clock at night, and one of the kids are awake, and they so my family power me to yes. to do this. You know, or so that's number one. Um, Sport is helpful. I mean, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but sport is helpful. And I've been to Paris in my life where I've been an ultra marathon runner and, you know, ultra canoeist and done kind of extreme sports. Um, that's difficult to balance when, you know, something's got to give. So you can't have a family, a, a, a sport, like an ultra crazy sports yeah. life. And, you can't and, be running three got, hours exactly, a day exactly, and a family exactly. man and a so that you, you know, so, so but, but if you can get in some excellence, I think it makes yeah. a huge difference. I remember yeah. Prof Mitchell, he is our second year physiology uh, prof. He came in, he's like, you guys, you know, you need to you need to go out and have a run every day. You've got to, you know, a healthy brain, a healthy body is a healthy brain. And I was like, yeah, 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 you know. <laughs> and it's true. I think it's true. So I think you've got to you've got to find something to to keep you you a bit sane. Um, but for me, number one, it's my it's my family, um, my wife and kids. And then number two is you know just to have some outside interest, some something that when you're doing it, you know, they talk about people being in the zone. You know, when when you're doing it, you're not thinking about anything else. Yes. So you can go rock climbing, go scoop diving, you can go for a, a, a hard run and you can just not think about the day. I think that that helps. Um, yeah, I think those would be my two, probably the two things that I use, I guess, or have at my, at, at, at my disposal. As a closing thoughts to this interview, what would you like to pass on to junior doctors or medical students listening to this episode? Um, it can be about neurosurgery, it can be about medicine in general, it could be something about personal development, just anything that you really feel that would help young people. So that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> and and this, there hasn't been any uh, preparation, unfortunately, yeah. as well, yeah. so I'm kind of pushing yeah. you on the spot, so I yeah. didn't realize that. 
Um, so I think I read quite a bit, and I'm not sure where I read it, but I think someone I read something recently. I think it was in uh, Brett Cozier's book. He's the was the um, guy in the U.S. Ronald Reagan, one of those what's it Nimitz class carrier flights. And one of his rules in life was keep the main thing the main thing. And I think some of the opportunities I've missed in life is where I've lost focus. Where I said, you know what? I could go in on a Saturday morning to go and assist on an ad. I'm talking about trying to be the best neurosurgeon you can yes, be. Like, yeah. could you know, is my day off, and I could go in. I don't have to go in today and assist with that aneurysm. There is actually somebody else that can do it, and you know, I'm, I'm going to go off and do, do something else. Um, that's a silly example, but if you think back, I think the opportunities I've missed out on and the things that could have made me better as a neurosurgeon are. Whereas if I just said, no, no, I'm going, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go do that. I'm mm-hmm. going to, you know, I'm going to go and spend, do those extra couple of hours. Instead of wasting your life on, on Instagram. On, on Instagram or on, on a, like, lost yeah. series or, yeah. you, you know what I mean? But, but, I mean, you need downtime. And uh, so, so what I want is keep the main thing. Keep your eye on the ball, you know, so I want to be a neurosurgeon. I want to, you know, um, kind of... Keep your focus on that. And when you do get into a neurosurgical rotation, we all have this tendency to feel sorry for myself. Like, oh, I work so hard. I need a day off, whatever. But every minute that you're not in the operating theater or you're not looking at scans, whatever, you actually, time's ticking by, you know, and you only have so much time to get good at something before you before you have to be that person. Yeah. That would be the one thing. Having said that, and now it's going to be completely contradictory, every person on their dying bed never says, I wish I spent more time at work. You know, everyone says, I wish I spent more time with my family, or I wish, wish. So I think, you know, keep your eye on the ball, but don't neglect, obviously, your family and the things that keep you going and that are ultimately more more important than than anything else in your life. But in terms of just talking about, and this is a neurosurgical part, podcast or a, or a medical podcast at any rate um keep 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 your eye on the ball at all times because you will you will never know enough you will never know all you need to know yeah. you will always be learning uh, you'll never stop learning and 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 just keep that approach open that i need to seize every opportunity to 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 keep on learning I think that's great advice and obviously comes from a place of experience. So thank you, Dr. Labaskakin, so much for your time. Thank you for the deposit and investment into our audience. We really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. And thank you for for inviting me. And I hope, um, yeah, I I, I hope that uh, someone can benefit with it. And then, uh, as I said, I I don't want to give out myself (laughs) online, but there are ways of reaching me. And they can do that through the podcast. They can do that through the podcast. They have to prove that that they're really interested. (laughs) And then, yeah, and then, you know, so we're happy to mentor people and and get them them on the track so that they don't land up, you know, what, I mean, one thing through the muck by themselves. They, yeah, they, oh, they become a general surgeon. Oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> whatever you do, just don't. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, it's a pleasure. Thank, thank you so much. If you're an aspiring surgeon, then listen up. The International Association of Student Surgical Societies, or IAS, is the official international students' affiliate of the International Society of Surgery. IASSS is a student and junior doctor-led organization that aims to unite the world's existing pre-specialist surgical groups and ensure every aspiring surgeon around the world has the opportunity to connect with like-minded individuals locally and internationally. They aim to provide their members with access to content and opportunities that enhance their training as they pursue a career in surgery. The IASSS's offerings include webinars, online workshops, research courses, and opportunities and mentorship programs. Every second year, the IASSS is afforded the privilege of hosting a delegation of 24 future surgeons at the World Congress of Surgery. This is an opportunity for medical students and junior doctors to brush shoulders with the world's leading surgical specialists and build their network for future collaborations. Applications for the Future Surgeons Program opened on the 1st of November 2023, and the conference will take place at the end of August 2024 in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia.
In the meantime, applications for national delegate positions in the 2024 IAS committee are still open. Interviews for the national delegates will start in January 2024 for the 2024 term. A national delegate is the official student representative for their country on the international stage. Applications are open for national delegates from every country and so if you would like to advance the field of surgery in your country, apply to be a national delegate for 2024. If you're interested and would like more information on the application process for the 2024 committee, visit their website on IASSS.org. And if you have any queries, you can email president at IASSS.org. You can also visit their Instagram page, IASSS underscore official. And if you'd like to simply sign up as a member, you can do that on their website as well. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Let us know what you thought on the Q&A Interact tab on Spotify. You can find this by scrolling down on your phone or computer you're listening to this episode on and typing a reply in the text box. You can also email us at drcoffeeza at gmail.com or drop a comment on the Instagram post with the cover art for this episode. If you think we've earned it, please leave a five-star rating and a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on, and please share with a medical student or junior doctor who you think would benefit from this episode and enjoy. Until next time, may your coffee be strong, your ward work light, and thank you for listening.